What's going on, guys? Welcome to this episode of the John Papaloni Show. Today, I have someone who's in Canada. I'm back to Canadian soil. I mean, I'm excited about this interview. This interview is going to be amazing, and we're going to be talking real estate. Terry Shower, welcome to the John Papaloni Show. Thanks for having me. Absolute pleasure. So, I've been excited. I've been waiting for this uh, interview. I mean, uh, I mean, you're in Montreal, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah, I'm in Toronto, so it's like Canadian dream. <laughs> <laughs> the 401. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, so this is awesome. Why don't we start off the interview with us, uh, or with you telling us a little bit about yourself, who you are, um, how you got there, and what you're currently doing. Sure. Um, so basically, like uh, most of the time or up until now, I've mostly worn the hat of the property manager. So basically, like when I was 19, I started managing the student house that I lived in when I went away to school. And then that sort of turned into what's called house hacking. So um, actually, it was, I, the, the, the crazy house that I managed when I started out was in Toronto. And then after that, I moved to Vancouver and set up kind of a similar thing where I rented a big house and portioned it out basically as like a kind of a student community. Um, and then when I was ready to start investing, I went to knock on the door of the bank and mo of mom and dad um, and said, look, guys, I've been managing properties already for four or five years. Would you help me close on a property to set that kind of thing up for profit? And so that's what I did. Um, I closed on a property that's in like the kind of the sketchiest or was then the sketchiest part of Montreal and turned that into like kind of a uh, student community for, for foreign students. And so that allowed me to upsell my rent on the one hand and on the other hand, provide a service, basically create a kind of a home away from home for, um, back then it was like a lot of French students were coming to Montreal. Um, and then I kind of did that, like while I finished my studies, I did a PhD in communications, which has nothing to do with real estate. <laughs> um, and then when I came to the end of that little adventure, I was like, okay, am I going to do real estate full time or am I going to continue the academic path? Um, and the right choice ended up being to, to focus on real estate. And so then, you know, one thing led to another and I opened a, a property management practice, um, and became a broker and then continued investing. And that's kind of where I sit today. So I still do a bit of property management. I'm wearing more of the hat of the, the full-time investor these days. Um, and then that turned into like three, four years ago, what became the book Mindful Landlord. And so after having spent a lot of time in the real estate industry, I noticed a bunch of different things happening. So I think the first thing is just this business of getting started. So a lot of people, when they want to go into something new, because very often people get into real estate and they're like, okay, I want to change a career. I want to um, try and, and, and set up financial freedom. Then they kind of get stuck because there's fear. There's the unknown. They don't know how to get started. So Mindful Landlord is kind of a technical book that looks at what are the strategies you need to implement, but also deals with the mindset that you need to have in order to succeed at doing something new. Um, and then, like, I just released the second edition, which is post-COVID. And then that's kind of a take on some of the, like, big scale shifts that we've seen during COVID, how one can position oneself perhaps in, 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 in the face of what's going on today, as well as maybe to be conscious of the macro environment that surrounds us. Because when we act as real estate investors, so, you know, we hear a lot of terms of gentrification, problems of affordability, and like us in our 
practice as investors, we are contributing to that. And so it's to begin to kind of understand these different levels where the micro actions we take end up affecting the micro picture. And um, yeah, I mean, that's a kind of as in a nutshell as I can do it. <laughs> yeah, makes sense. That's awesome. Like, I didn't realize you actually wrote books, which is awesome. But what was the inspiration between that? I mean, for that? I mean, like, yeah. No, yeah. I mean, it's basically what like, you know, what I said. So I think like the first thing was just a frustration with um, some of what's available in real estate coaching, because I watched my clients like kind of try to start out, be it people that I work with as a broker or, or like now I, I do a bit of coaching. So then people I end up coaching. And a lot of what you hear in the real estate coaching industry is I say the three D's, more doors, more dollars, more deals, right? And so those become the metrics that everybody's running after, but very often that doesn't incorporate well-being. It doesn't deal with like the mental aspects of what it takes to actually make some of that happen. So, you know, I also have like a history in combat sports. And so um, I know how important it is to have your mind aligned in order to reach your goals. And it struck me as a bit unfortunate that in that industry, there's very little looking at mindset in terms of what are the things that prevent people from getting started. And then once they start sort of winning and then they have start having some success, what prevents you from just getting into another rat race? Because it's very easy to be sort of consumed by chasing after those metrics, um, which then ends up, you know, at times being maybe not super socially productive because there are these other macro things going on that if we're not aware of, like we might be acting in ways that are destructive ultimately. Right. That makes sense. I get that part. Now, I mean, it, it's amazing, but like, it, it's amazing that like, what age were you when, when, like, if you don't mind me asking, yeah, yeah. like how old were you when you started getting into investing and then started doing all this? Like, yeah. I mean, I know you said you started in Toronto, you know, and yeah. you know, like, it's just incredible because usually this stuff doesn't like, Let's, let's be honest, the, the actual dream usually people have is they go to school, they get that good education so they can get that good job. Then they're going to find that home that they're going to live in. And many people are confused and believe that home they live in is an investment. But the reality is it's an investment you can never really cash out of. So uh, uh, to me, that's just an equity for down the road when you're willing to let go of the homes you own and rent or live in, or when you're in a long-term care, you have money behind you. It's just a forced savings plan. I don't seize the home you live in as a um, an investment home, but a lot of people see it that way. And then, you know, usually people follow that path and go there. But in a way, you took a different path, maybe yeah. not completely, but you got into the uh, investment side right away. Yeah. Well, I mean, so the, the backstory of that is like, so I come from uh, an entrepreneur family. My dad's an entrepreneur. My brother's an entrepreneur. My mom had a corporate job, which like she hated for most of my life. Um, and so it's like, I watched this narrative where like for us, I guess the path to freedom was always entrepreneurship. Right. And so when I was young, I actually didn't want to go into business. I, I studied a philosophy. Like I, I did a, I mean, I have a PhD. Right. So I spent a lot, a lot of time in school. Um, but I, I feel like I never like had that dream that I want to, you know, own a house and have two kids and two cars. Um, like for me, I get my dream was really I wanted to do something in martial arts. And so I wanted to have a life, uh, something that could support that like full time hobby, if you want to say. Um, yeah. And then 
I mean, what happened is, is I read Rich Dad Poor Dad when I was like 22. And then I'm like, wow, it really is a scam. Like I, I, I never had this dream of like wanting to, you know, get a corporate job. But then like when I was super young, I, I read that and I'm like, wow, man, the financial structure of being an employee, it just does not make sense. So like I was never really planning to set myself up that way. But then I was like, no, definitely that's not where we're going. Um, and then how I fell into landlording was just very accidental, you know, like I think it was, is the, the point of like ending up in that big student house, which I ended up managing and liking it. And then, you know, when I first set up like my initial house hack thing where I just like, I rented a house and portioned out the rooms, like it wasn't with some grand master plan that like, Oh, one day I'm going to be an investor or a property manager. It's just, I liked living that way. And I wanted to recreate that community environment where I went. And like, I would say even you know, at 26, I was 26 when I, I, I bought my first uh, triplex, like part of it was profit, but part of it was also just being like, no, like I want to create this kind of a community for people. Um, and like, if I make some money, okay. But I, I don't think it was like, there was not like this big grand master plan, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's true. See, that's awesome, right? Like, uh, I mean, like, I mean, you said when you were 26, so it sounds like you just started because you look 26. I'm, I'm, <laughs> my friend, I'm 44. Wow. We're, all, we're basically the it's been same 20 age. years, <laughs> but thank you. <laughs> Keep talking. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, like, um, th that's incredible. That What a great story. Um, like, I love the industry. Like, my parents were landlords. I grew up around it. Now, it took me a very long time to sort of find that path, find my way. I kind of ventured through a lot of things. Now, I had a lot of uh, great successes. I mean, we're talking about eight-figure-a-year kind of successes. Um, but, I mean, I've had my share of failures too. So, But with that being said, it's sort of like everyone finds their journey in different spots in life. And, you know, obviously I've, I found success early on, which could have been a blessing or a curse, depending how you see the like outcome. Like a child star. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that really ends well. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, that's exactly what happened. I mean, I, I, as I just said, I had an eight-figure business, and uh, that was in my 20s. And, I, and in my uh, 30s, I was broker than broke. So you got to ask, how did that happen? Right? So it's, uh, you know, up and downs. And every business is up and down. That's what a lot of people don't realize. Everyone thinks that once I find my key, it's just going to go straight up, and it's going to go, up you know as fast as the titanic went down <laughs> you know what i mean like but it's not true so i mean obviously it's slow gradual over a period of time so with that being said i mean where i'm going with this is that there is a certain point in time you do find where you belong you found yours early which is fantastic but there's a moment where i'm sure you have doubts you have you had times where you started wondering am i doing the right thing but we have this moment that comes in and goes, aha, I am in the right spot. I am where I'm supposed to be. I am super glad I'm here and things could not be better. What was that moment for you? Yeah, I mean, it's it's actually funny that you say that, that, oh, I, you know, I found my place early in life. I think that's actually really not true. <laughs> um, you know, like I said, I ended up being an accidental landlord for most of my 20s. But, um, you know, when I came to the end of my PhD, I think I was 31. And like, there was like a major, major soul searching moment there, because like, basically, my whole life had been working towards getting a PhD, and I wanted to be an academic, right. And so when I came to the end of that adventure, and I was like, wow, this is like, just it's this is not the road I want to take. And so 
that was like, you know, it took almost a year of being like very anxious and like really tearing my hair out to be like, okay, am I going to just put the PhD in a box, stick it back on the shelf and like go into real estate and start like, I skipped over that in the intro, but like go basically back to an entry level position. Cause that's what I did. Like I went to work in a property management company for three years before becoming like a sort of a real estate professional. Um, and I mean, it was in France as well, but like my salary was like, I wasn't even earning 20 K a year, you know? And like, basically I was running around renting units. Like I was probably the most educated rental agent like <laughs> in the world, right? Like going around doing uh, building tenant files and like filling out, um, you know, walkthroughs, inventories. Um, you, okay, so you studied 10 years for that, right? Like, so, you know, I, I think it's, it's a pro like it's, a, it's kind of a process. And every time you go through one of those transitions, you have to like not be afraid to start again at the bottom, you know? And I think for me, that's been the experience of writing a book and then the experience of like, you know, I have my own podcast. And so even after being like, you know, successful enough in real estate, like then you start in another game and you begin again as a white belt, starting at the bottom and figuring out all those lessons that someone who's been doing it for a long time has learned. So I, I don't know if, I, I don't think there's a forever and ever amen kind of moment of that story. I think it's that as you take on different roles or as you pivot your business or, or become interested in different things, you kind of have to be comfortable with that process of starting at the bottom and being like, okay, I'm just going to give it 10 years and then I'll be really good at this. Right, right. Like, now, let me clarify. When I say you started young, I mean, let's, let, let's face it, you were a landlord. You may have not known this is the direction you're going, but you were kind of there. Yeah. Right? I mean, when you buy a triplex, that's kind of, yeah, that's kind of where you are without even knowing it in my case. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, and that's why I mean, like, there's a certain point in time you realize, oh, okay, this is what I'm doing. <laughs> that's what I meant by it. Yeah. But yeah, like that's awesome. Um, in terms of like, you said you're into martial arts. I mean, I, I noticed, I mean, I, I looked, I Facebook creeped you. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you stalked me. You social media stalked me. Okay. <laughs> and um, I noticed you're very into that whole uh, fitness thing and all that. Well, how did that like come about? Like, I mean, was it something that was always part of you? Is it, was there something that uh, sort of like you discovered and changed? Like, yeah, I mean, for me, like if I would say if I had a like kind of a calling, I don't think real estate was my calling, right? Like, I think that if, if anything, it was martial arts. And like, I knew that I started karate when I was, I think, 21. Um, and then I had this dream of, you know, being a world champion kickboxer, right? And so that's what took me to France where I worked as a, a property manager. And then after that, I started uh, Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. And so it's as if like, you know, you asked me about feeling like you're in the right place. Like for me, that pastime or, or hobby, like kind of was the place where I felt at home for a really long time. And it was in a sense, getting the rest of my life to fit around that, that has been the challenge, you know, but like, what's really great about that experience is that that's such a, a realm where you have to clean up whatever mental baggage you have if you want to succeed, that you can then bring that mindset into everything else that you do. Because like, let's say, you know, when you're going to go and fight in a boxing match, like the level of stress and fear um, that you feel there is way more than something you would feel, let's say, when you're going into some sort of a real estate transaction or when you have to go to networking or like whatever other things might be scary. Like, it's as if that experience is just so scary that everything else seems smaller. And so, yeah, it just like was a very good place to um, 
perfect a, a mindset, I guess, that you can then transfer into other things. And I mean, that was also like part of the motivation to write the book in the end was to realizing just like these mental tools, tools are so powerful. Why is nobody importing them into the real estate field to help people succeed there? Uh, well, good point. I mean, like, I don't have the answer to that, but it's good that you did it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's one of those things, I guess. I don't know. Maybe nobody thought of it. Maybe, uh, well, it's a question sometimes. of having like those two experiences, right? And I think like that's one of those areas that can be just very fertile when you have someone who like comes from, let's say, one domain and goes into another one. Like I, you know, have a colleague who I think had a, you know, a corporate like marketing job, right? I'm like, when I watch him come into the real estate industry, like all of his, he's so good just because he's really good at like networking and organizing things and like getting the marketing aspect of stuff together. And you're like, wow, it's because, you know, you have these one set of skills over here that when you like import it into the other thing you're trying to succeed at, it just like works really well. And it's very like fertile, I guess. Right. Right. Now let me ask you something. It's like, like how many properties have you accumulated over the time? Yeah. So right now I'm about about 50 doors. Um, nice. and in management, like I've managed like over a thousand units over, not all at once, but over a period of time. Yeah. <laughs> Makes sense. I mean, and again, like 50 doors seems like an overwhelming number to get to. Um, obviously it wasn't, you woke up one day and did it. No. What was the process? <laughs> how, how did you put it together? Like, and how, yeah. how did you get to 50 doors? I mean, cause no, I mean, look, I mean it's it's a like it's a good question because I think like this is one um, thing that uh, in Canada the process of moving from like what's called a mom and pop investor to like a professional investor I think like there's really kind of a like a, a level there that people struggle with so you know like I said at the beginning of the story I started with like a triplex um, in Hochelagen which is a, like a not great area of Montreal it's come up now but it was at the time not great and then one triplex two triplex three triplexes. And I actually stayed that way for 10 years um, and, and got to be financially independent with nine units um, because, I, I mean, on the one hand, like it kind of met my needs. But on the other hand, it's because I just didn't understand that there was another, another level to the game. So I only really understood residential financing. And after three triplexes, like I had used up all of the debt ratios that I had access to. And then that was kind of where I plateaued for a long time. Um, and then once I started to learn that there is this other game of like, you know, uh, syndication, joint ventures, um, and also the financing of how it works with units that are like um, buildings that are over six doors, that really allows you to uncouple your investment activities from your own personal um, debt ratios. So it's kind of like leveling that up that then has opened the door onto the portfolio, like really becoming like growing much bigger because if you stay in the residential space, you're kind of always going to be limited to like one triplex, two triplex, three triplexes. And then you kind of run out of, run out of, of capacity. Right. That That's exactly, uh, that, that's exactly the uh, hardship of it. Right. Like, and that's why sometimes I believe and correct me if I'm wrong. Sometimes the thought of going bigger is scary, but sometimes jumping over that hoop it actually makes it easier overall. I mean, maybe not in the beginning. Nobody's going to go and buy a uh, twenty, uh, you know, twenty-unit building on the very first purchase. But once you kind of learn the fundamentals of it, taking that extra leap, 
like going that second layer, adding that second mm -hmm. layer is a lot easier than creating the first layer. Mm -hmm. Well, I think, them. I mean, it's like, I think, uh, you know, I talk to tech entrepreneurs sometimes and they say, oh, whatever, like your first hundred million is the easiest, right? And like, it's that at a, in a sense, it's, it's a question of scale, right? That like, you know, there's, will be something holding you at a certain plateau. And like, I, I tell the story that way for a reason, right? Like for 10 years, I was perfectly happy with my three triplexes and nothing came in to encourage me or to force me to take another step and do anything different. And then, you know, one day you get some more knowledge, you meet some people, you get in contact with something and then boof, you get over that level. And then that level will work up until whatever the next plateau is. And I mean, I guess when I get there, I'll know what it is. <laughs> True. Um, but that there are like some things that are just, you know, easier to scale. And like when you, you do want to have a, a, like a, a higher level or a bigger level of success at something, it's finding those business models that are scalable on a large level. That's true. Now, I mean, to me, sometimes the thought of joint ventures can be scary, right? I mean, there's a lot of uh, unanswered questions and how does it work? And, you know, I mean, like, what are the risks compared to doing it on your own? What are the benefits? Um, I'm wondering if you can break down how the joint venture uh, process worked. Well, maybe even work for you. Sure. So, I mean, what's a joint venture? Like a joint venture is basically when you associate yourself with other people to complete a purchase. And typically the way that works is um, sometimes someone might be easier to finance, someone might have more cash down and someone might have the knowledge. And so at this point in my career, like I'm kind of the one who has access to the deals and who knows how to um, pick a profitable property and then make a property profitable. And then usually at this point, like when I look for joint venture partners, it will be people who either inject capital or people who are, you know, financeable at the bank. And so the fact of putting together that package allows you to go get something that all of us on our own would not be able to handle. Right. So that's the basic, like, concept behind a joint venture, then when the rubber meets the road, what does it look like? Well, there's, it's just a legal contract, right? So like you will co-own the building or your holding company will co-own the building with other people. And then in that contract, you sort of lay out the responsibilities of everyone and you determine a, um, uh, like a, a, a cost structure at the end of how everybody gets compensated for what they contribute. So, I mean, that's kind of like the technical aspect and like you could get a lawyer to walk you through that or like a, you know, a coach who, who's familiar with precisely like all of the niceties of those contracts. Um, and so that's kind of the, the, the technical part of it. And then yeah. like the human part of it is, you know, if you ask me, like, I know some people in the field who really, are trying to grow very fast are just looking for money partners, right? Like they, they want to grow, grow, grow. And so they're maybe a bit less choosy about who they get into business with. For me, like, you know, my book's called Mindful Landlord. It's no secret. Like for me, I don't want to go fast. I don't want to, in French, people would say, I don't want to dance faster than the music, right? right? And so for me, it's like to really, I don't want to get into some kind of a legal battle with partners. I don't want things to end badly. And so I have like kind of a, a very extensive vetting process that usually starts with me managing properties for people. And so like once we have a, you know, a, a business relationship that's already a couple of years deep, it becomes kind of a no brainer to say, well, look, okay, so Terry, I've been managing your properties for two years. Like, is it time for us maybe to do some deal together? Right. And so then for me, that ends up typically being the way 
that I get into business with people is once we already know each other fairly well, we've been to the rental board a couple times. Like I've seen how people deal with, you know, <laughs> when things get stressful, I see how that ends up playing out. And then I feel like, okay, I'm comfortable now. If we co-own something, I know that if things don't go our way, we're not going to be at each other's throats. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and that's the thing, right? Cause I, I can always see something happening when you have multiple people involved into something and it's like, it, you know, sometimes I wonder, like, it's like you said, if you're at each other's throats, how do you solve it? Yeah. Right? And, and the other thing is that uh, when you do the joint venture, is there a certain amount of time that the deal is, you know, like do you hold on to the properties like forever? Is there a time? Yeah. Period? I mean, this, you know what, this is actually a great, great question. Like, so usually, um, because like I said, I'm kind of maybe more, conservative i don't know um we usually make five-year plans like uh, we tend to finance with the bank and so like we'll make a you know the term of the mortgage and then we kind of open things up and decide are we going to refinance or are we going to sell but it's really a great question because my first joint venture really didn't go very well it was uh something that i got into with uh someone who was a very good friend of mine at the time and um, we made a five-year plan. And after two years, um, you know, her and her husband had other priorities of what they wanted to do with their money. Um, and so I ended up basically looking down a shotgun clause where she's like, okay, Terry, we want to get our money out. So either now we have to sell the building or you have to buy us out. And it was like really not an opportune moment for me to go and raise the capital. That's what I ended up doing. I ended up raising the capital to buy her out. But it was really like, it was stressful. It was not according to plan. And like, you know, I ended up actually like losing the relationship over it. So, you know, it's, and I, I think I kind of learned from that to say that, okay, you know, what kind of people do you want to get into business with? What kind of provisos do you put in and what can it look like when things don't go how you want? Because that's the other thing, right? Like usually we're talking about large chunks of money and, and, you know, people have, partners people have kids people have divorces people have aging parents like in some you know when somebody wants to get their money back like then it, then the rubber meets the road right if they want to get their money back are they going to stick to the plan right yeah and that, that's a very big concern out there i yeah. mean like i you know it's one of those things that i think about as well like it's my like i mean one of my newer businesses that I've started is a uh, capital investment things where I'm getting into uh, obviously kind of the same thing that you're talking about here. I mean, I'm also doing private equity mortgages, but that's mm -hmm. besides the point um, where I'm going with this is that one of my concerns when I meet with a, an investor who wants to invest into the business is that um, I do 10 year contracts and it's one of those things that sometimes you don't know what happens. Yeah. So what's going to be my reaction if the guy if the guy or girl comes in six years later and says, I want out, I need my money? Yeah. Because sometimes, prime example, if I use the money for a private equity mortgage, well, you got a guarantee for that person for however many years that you guys agreed. It's not like I can knock on the door and say, hey, buddy, sell your house. Yeah. I need the money back. Yeah. <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? Like, yeah. So, so that, that could be, you know, that could be one of the uh, stresses out there. And that's something I think about. So... And I guess, you know, anything could happen. And I guess the contract is what, where it makes yeah. the difference. Because if they have yeah. a shotgun, like you said, there's an opportunity to get out and that may cause problems. Yeah, but, yeah. Um, I mean, it cause, you know, it causes problems. But, like, it doesn't, like, let's say, you know, in, in my case anyway, it didn't cause a cataclysm, right? It's that, like, you know, thank God we had a, a proper 
contract. And then it also just became that we were civil enough to be able to take things apart in a way that ended up being, I think, mutually beneficial. Right. And like, yeah, there were some like I had bad feelings about it afterwards, but like ultimately it wasn't, you know, a catastrophic career ending event. Right. So (laughs) just like, but that's, but that's, you know, that's what I like. I tell other people when I coach them on this whole joint venture thing is that just, you know, as you understand the profile of the person you're getting involved with, like understand how much of their money is it? Like if this is the only money they have to invest and they're putting it in your project, the chances that they're going to be anxious or that they're going to want to pull it out are probably higher than if it's like somebody who has a lot of capital and this is just one investment among many or like how, how are they with the contracts that they have in their life? Right? Like if they have a five-year plan, how have they been in other aspects of their life respecting the five-year plan? And like once you, you know, get to know somebody, get to know how they develop a business relationship, those inform that information will become clear. That makes sense. Absolutely. Again, that's a uh, due diligence too, right? Yeah. And as you get more experienced, you know what to look for. When you're in your early stages, sometimes you're going in and uh, you don't think of things for lack of better description. Yeah. Um now, has there been ever a time? where you were going to get into a deal, you think it's going to turn sour, but then it actually ends up doing a 180 and it ends up being like one of the most, like one of the better things that happened. You're going, Oh my God, I didn't expect this. This is fantastic. And it's actually funny because this, this deal, the deal that I just mentioned with the joint venture partner was like exactly that, right? Like basically we had a five-year plan and I had this sense that in five years, the property was going to really appreciate. And so you know, they wanted to get out once there had been like this much appreciation, like, I don't know, at the time was, I think $30,000, right? Like the the value went up $30,000. So she cashed out at a certain valuation, which is what the property was worth at that time. And I actually just sold it a year ago, which was the completion of the five-year plan and doubled my money. So yeah, so there you go. That that proves (laughs) what I always say about real estate, you know, don't, you know, wait to buy real estate, buy real estate and wait. Exactly. And like, you know, it's I I also liken it to cooking soup, right? Like, if you eat it 10 minutes after you put it in, the carrots are going to be crunchy and the noodles won't be cooked. Like you got to let the thing cook for the amount of time that it has to cook. And like, if you're building a five year plan, if you're building a two year plan, you're building a three year plan, there's a reason for that. And it's like, you know, I tell that to the clients that I coach, I tell that to the people I get into business with is that like, okay, there's going to be a moment when the building is at its highest value. We're trying to get it there. And then at that point, either sell it and refinance it and forget it. But don't do that until you've attained that full value, because otherwise you're just going to be eating an uncooked meal. And like, what's the point of that? Yeah, good point. Well said. Now, how's there been the op? Oh, actually, let me get into a different question. Sorry. What, uh, how do you find a property? Like, and I don't mean how do you, you know, you can look at an MLS and find a property. I mean, mm-hmm. how do you decide where, what areas you're interested in, what areas you're not? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, look, I think this is really a business model question. Like, so like my business model has pretty much always been like the lower end of the rental market. So I work more in affordable housing. And so I've typically always tried to, I tried to identify areas where um, it's an up and coming area. Often there's like a lot of very like poorly managed properties where the current owner just has not been managing professionally enough. And so like there's tenant issues that are gotten out of control, maintenance issues that are out of control. Um, And so like I've made it my business to identify markets like that and then make smart decisions within those markets. And so 
like for me, I guess when I was investing in Montreal, this happened like very intuitively um, until recently when, you know, the, the buildings in Montreal have become like quite overpriced. So I then did it um, in a, a town that's like an hour and a half out of the city and really kind of reverse engineered that. So like I went to the town, I like spent a few weekends there, got to know, got a feel for the place, spoke to some brokers, spoke to some people who knew the market. And then you kind of are able to begin like farming a section in the sense that like you understand what are the markets there what are the kind of um challenges and is it optimal for whatever your business model is because again like i i can't restate this enough like my you know i work in low-end housing but some people uh prefer to do like transition to condos or prefer to have like more high-end units and so you really have to then identify what is the right location for your business model and that's like there's no uh, shortcut to boots on the ground and really understanding that market. And then like, then the deals pick themselves because when you're really familiar with a particular market, like you're going to know when something comes up, that's going to work for you. And that's going to make you money. Oh, interesting. I, you know, it's kind of an answer I wasn't expecting, but it's very uh, well thought out. I like it. I like it. That, what do people great. usually answer to that question? <laughs> wow. You know, I mean, it's usually like, somebody gets more particular detailed in terms of like they pick a type of property and uh you know where they won't want to be you know i mean it's like but i mean like you got into the actual research aspect not just yeah. a flat answer right like and, yeah. and that makes sense i mean because it's easy to say oh well i would only buy um you know apartment buildings with 20 units okay yeah like where how <laughs> yeah. right? that's awesome that's awesome i like that answer i mean like i, I would have never thought of it you know spend a few weekends in the area yeah. No, and like I'm, I'm really big on data, you know, like it's no surprise I spent 10 years in a PhD. So like research is kind of my thing. But like, I really like think like there's so many people make so many decisions just based on, oh, my uncle said this or I think this or whatever. No, no, no. Like there's we live in the age of data. So like go yes. and do the research like there. And one kind is anecdotal, put boots on the ground, go see physically something that's going to give you one set of information. But then we have incredible access to like, let's say in Canada, right? The CMHC report. And if you want to know uh, what municipalities have the fastest appreciating rents, um, where are uh, there's a lot of new construction, like you, all of that information is out there. Like, don't take it on hearsay. You can go and verify all of it. And it's going to be very, it's going to really inform your decisions. That's true. A lot of times I look at things in terms of investments. I find out where the builder's going because they've done their research. They've done the data and I can kind of cheat by using their data yeah. and seeing where they're yeah. building. And I try to buy in that same vicinity. Absolutely. Which, it's like McDonald's, right? Like when McDonald's open up, so opens up on a particular corner, like they know something we don't. And so like you can, if you follow the big, big players, you can kind of like reverse engineer and be like, okay, well they did their research, so I don't have to. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> That's awesome. Now, what are your future plans? Like where do you see yourself going? Like, we'll say like your yeah. five-year plan. So, I mean, I mentioned that like, yeah, well, like, I mean, I don't know that I have uh, something as ambitious as a 10 year plan, but I think, um, you know, for me, at watching what's happened um, during the pandemic with, um, you know, affordability problems and then also seeing, you know, like I said, I work in a kind of low income housing and like seeing what the fate of some of my tenants have been through a time that's been difficult for people who are like maybe in that like bottom 
rung of uh, of society. Um, I'm focusing more uh, on affordable housing now. And uh, as I'm sure you're familiar, like the CMHC has this like great product now that is going to uh, help landlords to provide affordable housing for people as long as you keep your rents below a certain level. Um, and so like for me, I was kind of already doing that. But like now that there's maybe more support, I want to do it like more consciously. Um, and also to maybe begin to understand like you know, some of the, the, the issues that the tenants are facing and to see like, how can, in some cases, how can we work with them as opposed to having this like very conflict, like top-down relationship or like, yeah. Yeah. That's great actually. You know what I mean? Cause the way you're describing it is, and this is what I find a lot of landlords fail to realize. Um, what happens is people get these properties and investments. And it's like you said, they look at it as top down. Uh, this is what I want. This is how it's going to work. Blah, 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 blah. But it's almost like this shield between tenant and landlord. And the reality is if you have a better relationship with your tenants and you realize that this is a business and your tenants are your clients. Now, when you go to a store, you expect people to talk down to you or be, you know, or to talk to you like you don't exist. And everyone's going to say no. So think of it this way. Your, your property is your Sears or your whatever. And the people living there are the clients walking through and shopping. So if you see them as your clients and you respect them as your clients, they'll see that and notice that. And then they're going to take more interest in your property. And they're going to be more vocal about things. Rather, and then I think that when they work with you and you work with them, I think the outcome is a lot better than versus, you know, having a tug of war, me versus you. Mm -hmm. I mean, so I I'm, think I'm also, like I said, I'm big on data. And like, for me, it's also a question of metrics, right? And if like the only metric you have for the success of a, of a project is the ROI, well, then that's all you're going to focus on, right? Whereas yeah. like, if your metric is like, am I creating a place that maybe, you know, in my case, these people who are maybe not don't have a lot of the opportunities or privileges that other people have. Are you able to turn it into something where like they can, it's clean. Um, it's like well run. They can have a level of predictability from their landlord um, that things will be repaired and, and, you know, to just like, create something that operates in a certain way. Right. And like that, that then becomes its own, metric and you can say okay well i feel good because like in you know society right now we have a problem with these low-end rents there's not enough of them and like look okay i'm providing them and like no my relationships with my tenants are not always super easy because it's not an easy population to manage but like at the same time like i you know i'm not doing gentrification and i'm doing something that's constructive and so then the metric becomes like what is the good that results from my actions as opposed to doors deals dollars you know yeah, I, again, I, I, that's another long-term uh, approach, right? Like, again, it goes to another thing, right? You can always chase the high rents and just keep chasing and chasing and chasing it. But, but sometimes you also got to look at it. If you're working, like I said, if you have that relationship with your tenants, more than likely they're going to treat your property better. There's going to be less repairs when they move out versus someone that you're just constantly jabbing at. And, well, if they're constantly being jabbed at, you're just a temporary solution. Yeah. And you know, people coming in and out all the time, and there's gonna be more wear and tear as a result. So yeah. it kind of goes hand in hand. I mean, there's got a balance there too. I mean, I'm not saying give away the farm, but 
you know, there's got to be a balance. And, I, and when you see people, you know, like I said, it goes back to what I said. When you see people as clients and you respect them as a client and not just a rodent that you came across, because let's be honest, that's how some people are treated. You got a better yeah, outcome. The one problem with that analogy, and like, again, I don't know what the laws are like in Ontario, but like here, like it's kind of, it can be kind of a forced business relationship because like in Quebec, like we can't end leases, right? So like, you know, it, it, when you're at a restaurant, like somebody who's tearing up your restaurant, like you're allowed to ask them to leave. Like we're not allowed to ask people to leave. And like, I think that's like one of the big problems with this like client analogy in Quebec is that like sometimes those are not people I really want to be in business with. Like I'm talking about a minority, but there's like certainly a, a, a <laughs> how can I say, a minority that weighs heavily on the whole of people that if I could end that, if I could end that business relationship, I would, but because of the laws here, that's kind of not the case. And so like, then it, it becomes not necessarily about service with a smile. Right. Yeah. Again, that, that is true too. I, you know, there's also that aspect of it. And then Ontario is not much different. Um, if someone's damaging your problem property, you could evict them. It's not, um, like, I mean, it's not like you walk up, lock the door and say, bye. Um, there is a process, but you could evict them. Um, if they're damaging your property, you can pretty much have them removed and gone within 10 days. But that's damage. If it's not that you combat. just want them out because you just decide that you can get someone better, good luck with that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so there's, yeah, there's a lot of restrictions too. I mean, really, the... It's not easy. I, I, I feel that pain too. You're right. It is not easy. And that's also why I think it's important to vet who you let in too. Absolutely. Um, and nobody's going to be batting 100%. You're going to have somebody that you think you got and you think they're perfect because you vetted them, you did everything you can. Well, they, some people are good at putting on smoke shows, as they'll call it. And once they move in, surprise, <laughs> it happens. <laughs> But for the most part, I think that if you're vetting them properly, for the most part, I think the majority of people will be fine. There's always, again, I think we call them professional renters. Right? When, you, when you find a professional renter, it doesn't matter how much experience you have, they know something you don't, regardless. They always find a new loophole. <laughs> so, again, part of the business, right? And every, every business has some losses, as I call it. Absolutely, absolutely. Have you considered go, you know, investing somewhere outside of Canada? Um, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm actually looking now. Uh, like I said, I used to live in France, um, so I'm like potentially looking at a at a project there just by way of diversification. But I guess you know my my business model is so management based. Um, that for me, my value add is really, uh, you know, being able to 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 deal with how the property is managed. So. No, but maybe if I were to say what my 10-year plan would be, like I think there's definitely some foreign investment in there. I don't know what exactly yet. <laughs> Makes sense. Makes sense. And, you know, things change as time goes by. So that's awesome. That's really awesome. Now, what would, piece of advice would you give someone who um, is really interested in getting into the investment, you know, market? Like in trying to, you know, get something beyond that residential home that they live in but they don't know how to start and they're a little nervous. Get some, get mentoring. Um, and that can be in the form of a real estate agent who works with investors, um, which you need to kind of vet in the process, like not uncle so-and-so or not so-and-so's, uh, you know, brother-in-law, like you need to find somebody who just really works on investments or get some coaching, um, get some coaching and then go for it. 
you know, nobody did anything without making mistakes. Like it's not, there's no such thing as a perfect record. Right. And like that first property you close on, there's going to be like in hindsight, 20 things you would have done different, but sometimes it's in the process where you learn that stuff. And if you, you know, put yourself on the court and force yourself to play, that's going to be how things happen. Makes total sense. I mean, I want to be respectful of your uh, time as well. So um, I want to ask you a last question and then get sure. into what I call the uh, lightning round. Sure. Do it. Okay. So last question is, where do people find you online? Oh, that's easy. Uh, Terry Shower, social media. I'm most active on LinkedIn. I have a website, terryshower.com. And if you want to check out my book, it's mindfullandlord.com. Or you can find a mindful landlord on Amazon. Fantastic. Now into the fun lightning round which is uh, just some personal questions that I think uh, is off topic, but interesting. And we'll start off with what is your favorite vacation spot? Oh, I think I know the answer, but (laughs) no, Marseille, France. I have a real soft (laughs) spot. (laughs) So awesome. Awesome. Um, Favorite food. Um, mm, mm, mm. I don't want to say sushi. That's so boring. Um, <laughs> chicken wings, chicken wings. <laughs> nice. Nice. Yeah. They're good. They're good. Do you like uh, different sauces on them or are you like, I like spicy, spicy. spicy. Okay. Yeah. That's fantastic. <laughs> awesome. Uh, favorite movie. Uh, fight club. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. yeah or black cat, white arts, cat. But like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's right. It took me a second. <laughs> um, favorite book? Mindful Landlord. <laughs> <Ooh-wee>. <laughs> of course. <That's> awesome. <laughs> no, um, no, no. Let me be more serious. I So I really enjoyed um, Jordan Peterson's 12 Rules for Life. Um, I've heard yeah, of that. I, I also, haven't read it, but I heard of it. Oh, yeah. And I also really liked The Silence of Girls, which is this telling of um, the Battle of Troy from the perspective of the female heroes. And I think like that's really worth a read. It's like difficult, but it's it's really worth a read. Very interesting. What about podcasts? My favorite podcast? Yeah. Oh, I'm I'm addicted to trigonometry right now. Interesting. I've never heard of that one before. Oh, yeah. It's about? great. It's like a kind of a macroeconomic, it's two British comedians who started like this um, sort of macroeconomic sort of cultural kind of podcast. And so it's like, like big issues, but they get like really great guests and it's, it's a really interesting podcast. Oh, awesome. Now, last one, but not least, if you had a do-over and an unlimited budget, what would you do? <laughs> is, is this like in real estate or is this in anything anything in life like you get a, a do-over yeah. you get the start yeah. over, you get the pick and somebody says don't worry you don't have to earn the money we're gonna front everything here's the money and you know free money don't have to give it back whatever you want you can do whatever you want what would you what would that yeah be? no really you know and i like I, I actually like mentioned this comes up like not often, but semi-often. And it's it, was, it would be my PhD. Like if I had could go back to that phase, I would have spent like five years fighting in Thailand as opposed to doing a PhD. Like I feel like that was just not good ROI on my <laughs> on my time. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense though. And again, you know, it's, I don't think it's totally on you because let's be honest, we're all brought up that way. Yeah, Gotta absolutely. go to school to get that good education because oh my God, what will you do if you don't? Now, for some people, it does pan out. And some people, it does make sense. Like, for example, if you want to be a doctor, you need a degree. 
I wouldn't want a surgeon operating me who didn't ever go to school. <laughs> right? I mean, like an engineer, sure. especially if you're working on bombs, you need a degree. Yeah. Right? Like it makes sense, but not everybody does that. You no, work but at school Starbucks. is not a it's not a checkbox and it's not, not no. an end in itself. It's it needs to it's like money. It needs to be a tool for something else. And I think like, you know, if I could go back and have a conversation with my 15-year-old self, that would definitely be the conversation I would have. It's just like don't go to school because that's what everybody does. Do it because you're trying to use it as a way to get somewhere. Um, and you know, like I, I, my undergrad degree is in philosophy, and like that was like probably the like very big fundamental thing in how uh, I ended up living my life. But like the the rest of the school trip was like mo like more a question of what I felt like society's expectations were, as opposed to something that actually came from somewhere internal. So, yeah. no, I agree with you 100% on that. Um, this has been phenomenal. I had a great time. It's been very informative. Thanks for having me on. Absolute pleasure. And uh, yeah, like, uh, I mean, definitely let's keep in touch for sure. If you like this episode and you want to see more, click on the link below to subscribe.